we're going to hear uh, the Bible read and taught. And the Old Testament reading this morning comes from Psalm 22. To the leader, according to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You who kept me safe on my mother's breast. I knew I was cast from my birth. And since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls encircle me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths wide at me like a ravening, ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs all around me, a company of evildoers encircles me. My hand and my feet have shriveled. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. My help come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. From the horns of the wild oxen you have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted, and he did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall, be, shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. To him, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. The Gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, beginning at verse 16. Then Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. 
Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage of scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. If it wasn't that uh, Jesus was so masterfully in control of these events, you might think that the first Good Friday was a complete train wreck. Especially if you think that uh, fundamentally Jesus was a teacher, uh, one in the long line of teachers and prophets and sages that we know of throughout history who show us the way to meaningful life and 
real fulfilment? What good, after all, is it that a teacher is arrested and beaten and scourged and executed? How exactly is that something to be celebrated and remembered and adored? As I say, if Jesus has just been a great and inspiring example and teacher, there would be nothing much good about Good Friday. It would be merely another good person snuffed out by evil power. But of course, this is not a train wreck. Um, as, as we read the account of Jesus' crucifixion in John's Gospel, the, the thing that strikes you again and again is the overwhelming sense that it is Jesus who is in control of events here, not his executors. He's perfectly aware that his hour has come. In fact, he's chosen it. Twice during the account, we are reassured that what is happening is the fulfillment of Scripture. And towards the end, we have this very touching scene of Jesus making provisions for his mother and ensuring her well-being while the last of his life is ebbing away. Throughout, Jesus is entirely deliberate. The actor, rather than the one being acted upon, the doer, rather than the victim. Which raises, I think, an all-important question for us on a, on a day like today, on Good Friday. On any fair reading, if it is the case that Jesus' grisly death on the cross is not a train wreck, but his own fixed purpose and plan, what does it say about him? How do you fit it in? What sense do you make of it? And what good does it possibly do? And I want to suggest that uh, one way to answer uh, that set of questions is the two statements that Jesus makes from the cross as his final words. You see them uh, there in verses 28 and 30. I am thirsty and it is finished. I'm thirsty and it is finished. And we're going to unpack them briefly, just under three uh, suggestive headings to bring out their meaning and thereby the goodness and grace of Good Friday. The reality of grace, the necessity of grace, and the finality of grace. So first then, the reality of grace. Uh, Jesus, if you, if you read the account from back in chapter uh, 17 and the beginning of 18, uh, has endured hell literally over the last 24 hours. Uh, the, the account is, is quite um, intense, actually. Arrested, uh, betrayed by his friends. He's a victim of uh, utter injustice at the hands of a corrupt court. Uh, he's beaten, he's mocked. Uh, as I say, he's scourged. That means he's whipped with um, what we would call a cat of nine tails, complete with bits of bone and metal that's tied into the lashes so that um, literally it actually shredded the flesh from your back. That's what happened. The, the bones were all exposed. Um, he's nailed to a cross and hoisted up. And, and what happens when you're crucified is that you can barely breathe. In fact, uh, suffocation is in the end the primary way that you die. You, you hang on your arms and, and try and hold yourself up by your feet, but you, you slump. And so you collapse on your chest. You, you can't breathe. And throughout this, Jesus has borne it all. 
with utter strength and dignity. Not one complaint. And now he says, I'm thirsty. Um, if, if we weren't familiar with it, we'd kind of, what? That's crazy. It's bizarre unless, well, I, I think there's a hint. In an incident earlier on in John's Gospel, back in chapter 4, he meets a woman at the well. At a well. He makes her an offer. He promises her something. She's there in the middle of the day. It's, it's, it's hot, of course. It's the Middle East. Uh, the reason that she's there in the middle of the day is because she's a social outcast. She's a woman, uh, I, I guess we would say, with a totally messed up life. She's a pariah. No one will, no one will go with her. People won't hang out with her. She's, she's a disgrace. And no one will go near her. But Jesus will. And he, and he makes this provocative statement to her. He says, uh, she gets the water that she needs for her house for the day uh, from the well. Um, he says to her, quote, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never thirst. In fact, um, he goes on, um, so utterly and gloriously potent is this water that he's offering, he says that it will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. You'll become the opposite of a messed up person. You'll become a fixed up person who just gushes goodness to others. A, a, a profound center, a source of blessing to others. You, you see what Jesus is saying? And I want to suggest that it's in that context that we understand his comment about thirst on the cross. You see, a fundamental part of the human condition is that we need uh, water to survive. You can do without it for, what, 72 hours, something like that. And Jesus takes that fundamental human need, physical human need, and extends it and says that there is a need of the soul that is as deep and as necessary and as insistent as our need for water physically for our bodies. For much of the time, our soul thirst is a powerful thirst that is hidden from us. For much of the time, we look at the world through it, not look at it. Without satisfying that thirst, our souls are parched and dry and desperate. And we can survive for maybe 72 hours. And so we sink our souls into that which looks most likely to satisfy us. If you read the account of John 4, and it's, it's you know, if you, I don't know what you do on Good Friday, maybe you've got some time free this afternoon, just... You know, do yourself a favour. It's not going to take a whole lot. Read John 4 and then read chapters 18 and 19 again. You read John 4 and you see how the, uh, it, it plays out uh, with Jesus. The, the woman says, what are the means? I don't have to keep coming back to this well in the middle of the day. That sounds awesome. Sure, yeah, let me at it. I'll have some of that. And then, and then, then Jesus changes the subject. He says, oh, oh, yeah, by the way, go get your husband. 
Um, she has no husband because she's had five husbands and the man with, that she's with now is not her husband. Uh, as I say, she's a mess. She has a love life that would make even a modern Australian blush. But she's not a modern Australian. She's a first century woman from a traditional society. Right? You've got to, I mean, she is a train wreck. Now, it looks like Jesus has done a bait and switch here, right? Uh, you want living water that will relieve you of the need to come back here again and again? That's terrific. Now let's talk about your sexual history. He's completely changed the subject on her, hasn't he? Of course he hasn't. Do you get it? Do you see how this works? To think that he's changed the subject will be to miss the point altogether. He's talking about exactly the same subject. It's just that with the gentleness and skill of a physician of the soul, he's slowly drawing out the contours of her thirsty soul. Which leads to the second point, the necessity of grace. You see, what becomes clear is that this woman, like so many women and men before and since, has sought to quench the thirst of her soul with romantic relationships. She has bounced from one failed relationship to another in search of the kind of connection and security in the arms of a man that will satisfy her. But of course it doesn't have to be romance and relationships. It can be money and career. The way that someone feels like they've made it in life because of the balance of their bank and the number and size of their homes. It can be power and influence, the way that a person feels like they've made it in life because they're masters of their own destiny and actually the destiny of a lot of other people as well. They can make or break people with a single decision. Do you see how our souls are desperately thirsty, more craving of something to satisfy them than the most parched you've ever felt on the hottest summer scorcher? And so here's the invitation in this thought. Each one of us, every one of us, you, me, we all sink our soul into something to quench our thirst, to latch onto something or someone to satisfy us. And, and here's the point of this. From the Bible's point of view, from the Christian kind of conception of things, that, that is what sin is. This is so crucial to get. When what you sink your soul into is anything other than the living and true God, that is what the Bible means when it talks about sin. Now, notice that that's different from sins. Of course, sin will lead to sins. Someone whose soul thirst is quenched by power will, of course, predictably use and abuse people in terrible ways, lying and manipulating and cheating, and aren't we sickened by what we keep seeing in the news about Canberra? And similarly, someone whose soul is quenched by romantic relationships may have had five husbands and be with someone who's not a husband. But they're just sins. Symptoms. 
And it would be a dreadful mistake if for even a minute you thought that exactly the same spiritual dynamic wasn't at work in you. Of course it is. Just as much as those whose sins get exposed and highlighted in the media. Oh, you better believe it. The sin beneath the sins. The thing that really matters because it's the wellspring of all our actions is a question of the heart, of the soul. And so the invitation here is, do you know yourself well enough? Do you know yourself well enough to know what you've sunk your soul into? What is the well that you keep coming back to, to quench your soul thirst? Now, notice what this means. It, 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 it's very important to see this. It is perfectly possible to be a horrible, brutal, low-life sinner who is violent and nasty and deceptive. Uh, one fairly trivial pet hate of mine at the moment is the internet scammers, uh, whose mail uh, fills my inbox every morning with offers. It's, I've inherited several billion dollars by now. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm a I could be a really, really, really rich person. If only I give them my bank account details so they could send the cash to me. Uh, we laugh. Some people do. They're scum. They prey on the most vulnerable and least capable and competent people that there are. They're scum. But here's the thing. It is equally possible to be a pleasant, middle-class, respectable person who smiles and who is moderately kind and generous and thoughtful and a good mate to her or his mates who gives even a little bit to charity every now and again. You can be a left-leaning, morally progressive sinner or you can be a right-leaning, morally conservative sinner because, you see, sin is totally undiscriminating. It's in all of us. Because any time anyone sinks their soul into anything other than the living and true God, and especially, especially when that is their sense of their own basic goodness and decency in contrast, say, to the scummy internet scammers, Isn't that the inner west creed, by the way? It's like we get up and say it every week. I'm a good person, unlike those bad people out there. That is the essence of sin. And, and the, the tragedy of it is that when you do that, ultimately, you will die of thirst. It won't work. It never works. You cannot satisfy yourself that way and that's what Jesus called hell. And with grace and kindness, with grace and kindness, Jesus brings that to the surface for the woman at the well because the only way that she can possibly have the living water that Jesus offers is to come to a different well for her soul. So do you see now what's happening when Jesus says on the cross, I'm thirsty? 
is not just bizarre, it's astonishing. Here is the only person who has ever utterly and totally quenched the thirst of his soul in God. Here is the person whose entire life has been centred on loving and living for his heavenly Father from all eternity and now on the cross. He's thirsty. Why? Because the cross of Christ is the great substitution. If you read earlier on, you see it enacted in the arrest of Jesus, where, where in effect he says, take me, let these people go. It's a substitution, a swap, a trade. The cross is Jesus in our place. And that's what's happening here. This is Jesus taking into himself our thirst. Jesus, for the first time in all eternity, starved of the presence of God to his soul. Precisely so that his promise to that woman at the well and to us that he will give us the living water, refreshment of the soul that will overflow in streams, welling up to a life really well lived for all of eternity so that that promise can be fulfilled. He takes our parched thirst so that we can have his gracious filling. Sin is us substituting something else for God in our life. Salvation is God in Jesus Christ substituting himself for us under the judgment of hell. And then Jesus says one final thing. It is finished. It means utterly and absolutely paid in full, discharged, dealt with. It's, it's like a work of art. You may know artists. It's the kind of thing that if you try to add to it, once it's finished, all you do is subtract from it. And when Jesus says it's finished, he means it. He's the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world and it is finished. Your sin is born away. It no longer exists for you. One of the great theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, put it this way, and this is, this is you've got to really let this sink in. Quote, this is what he says, because he is there, Jesus on the cross, and we can look at him we no longer have to recognise sin in ourselves being freed from the intolerable responsibility of it. I mean, do you, do you, you ready to kind of take hold of what Jesus says and means when he says it's finished? Being freed from the intolerable responsibility of it, not because Bart goes on, it is no longer a fact, but because he has made it his own for us. Our sin. I might even paraphrase, our thirst and the disastrous ways that we try to quench it is no longer our own. 
It is his sin. The sin of Jesus Christ. God, he himself, as the obedient son of the father, has made it his own. And in that way, he has judged it and judged us as those who have committed it. It is finished. It really is. And so this is the will you take uh, the time to allow Jesus to do some work on your soul? Will you meditate in the shadow of the cross? Like, uh, and like that woman at the well, be shown the contours of your soul and what you sink it into. To, to recognise what it is that you turn to to satisfy your soul's thirst. It'll be that thing which, when you don't get it, makes you most quickly angry, sad, frustrated, furious. What have you built your identity, your value, your sense of yourself and your meaning on? And then see Jesus. Thirsty in your place. On your behalf. Bearing in himself the scorching heat of hell that should be ours so that we can have the living water that is his and sink your soul into him. Amen.